0: Well, good morning, Church. Glad you're here. Glad you've chosen to worship with us. Before I get into the message and even giving you give me start thought process, i got to show you a video real quick that my wife sent me. One night, she's in her chair. In her chair, meaning her chair's over there and my chair's over here. She has her clicker. I have my clicker, you know, a remote control. We've ordered duplicates, so we have them. It's kind of fun when we really get the dueling things going. It's kind of fun to see who wins poor dog sits on the floor it goes into convulsions He's watching the screen you know it's like this and she's watching her computer she sends me this video she says you got to see this and so I me give you a background this is this is a video a guy took on his phone sitting in church <clears throat> trying to focus on Jesus the music has it's the pre-service music has started <clears throat> and he's just showing a video of the guy he's sitting behind which is making it a little hard for him to think about Jesus the way of the Lord, behold, he comes riding on the clouds, shining like the sun at the trumpet call. Lift your voice the year be, till you have to believe. And that is the salvation. Comes. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to keep my head down when I say this. If you're bald, don't put your glasses on backwards wherever you're seated at, because that's just too tough. I, I keep watching. When I first saw it, I thought it was maybe someone had made this face on purpose, and then I laughed all the harder when I realized this guy's just enjoying church. Everyone behind him is having a problem focusing. So just look at me and you'll be fine. This morning, my thanks to Pastor Matt preaching these past couple of weeks. I've been at a board meeting uh, representing the Alliance, and I lo- but I love being back. And this morning, we're going to continue in our series. We're talking about the church. Uh, we're asking the question, where did the church come from? How did it start? We're in the book of Acts. How the church first began, And how is it that 2,000 years later, from this little group of 100 to 125 people, do we find ourselves in a place where one-third of the world would say that they're Christian? You know, how possibly could the church have survived and be at the place it is today? <clears throat> now, church ministry-wise, so I have known since I was young that I was supposed to be in ministry. Uh, admittedly in middle school I wanted to be a pastor but it wasn't a calling at that point it was just an infatuation with the pastor I wanted to be a pastor because the pastor we had at that na- at that time his name was Jim Armstrong he was tall he was six seven deep baritone voice but it wasn't just that though that wasn't bad you know hearing him speak but here's what I I remember so vividly we had a number of family crises my mom had cancer and some other family things that show up every time he walked into the room. Everybody felt better. It was kind of like God's here. And I remember as a kid, he'd walk in, he'd start to pray, and everyone would go calm. And I, th- who doesn't want to be that? I mean, I, w- I want to be him. And I was in high school when clearly God laid on my heart, <clears throat> you're supposed to be a ministry. So I went to school. Uh, went, got a Bible degree, Bible and theology, all for the plan of ministry, went down that road. Now, I'm in a class, 1979, so kind of dating things here, 1979, the fall of 1979, the the professor's name was Dwight Gardstrom. He was probably in his 60s at that point, my guess would be. Uh, He was the chairman, Dr. Gardstrom, the chairman of the music department. He was an accomplished musician, but also pastored and and was working in the local church as a a musician. So he's been down this road in the Class, we were you know, it was a pastoral pastoral modeling class and musical conducting, congregational conducting. Uh, you know, again, back then, you're going to the church, you had to be ready to lead music, and so literally, he taught us how to lead music uh, and how to conduct, and just you know, I was very good. Um, I mean, that was very good. Uh, and part of your thing you had to do is you had chapel in the college, and one of the things you had to do if you were, a, if you were going to be a pastor or preaching, you, when you, had to give a, you had to preach in one of the chapels in your senior year, so that was that. But the other thing is you had to lead the worship. Back then, it wasn't, it wasn't a band. It was you up front leading worship. And so we had to do that. And then one day, he's just kind of talking off the cuff type of thing. And I would suggest to you that you learn more, maybe not more, but you learn as much Just in the side conversations, if you're attentive and listen, than you do right in when you're going to the class. We're in the the class, he's talking, and he says this. He said, You know, a lot of you are going to go in ministry. He's going to give you an observation. I've been doing music ministry for I don't know how many years, but at that point, probably 40 years. And he said, I'm going to tell you a couple things about ministry. He said, Listen, first of all, if you go to a church that has a choir, you need to know that choir is going to be the greatest source of relational problems in the church nonstop. We're, We're going, What? And he goes, yep, been that way for 1,000 years, 2,000 years. As long as there are choirs, it's still going to be that way. And, of course, we're all going, well, how can that, you know, how can that be? He goes, it just is. He said, See, he said you're putting a bunch of solos together. He said, who's singing, who's singing which part, who gets to lead, who gets to sing the solo, where do they sit? He goes, I'm just telling you right now, nonstop, as long as there's a choir. And he said, I'm not saying not have a choir, but you just need to know that's going to be the source of problem for you. So, you know you're, you're, you know, you're going, okay, I've got to jot that down. And then he said this, but that's not the biggest problem you're going to have. And now you're going, well, I should really listen to what comes next. He said, the biggest problem you're going to have in the church when you get into a church is annual church meetings, church business meetings. They will be the ongoing problem that you always are going to have to tackle and face. Now, you know, we're, and I grew up in the church. I didn't go to the annual meetings. I know they had them. I knew they were long. I know my parents would leave at 6 and come back at 11. I mean, it's a pretty long night. And I know I hear conversations about it being, you know, a lot of things being talked about. But he said that that's going to be the issue. Church meetings are the worst. And we asked the question, well, why is that? And I'm, this is not an exact quote. I couldn't find my notes from that class from 1979. But <clears throat> he said something to this effect and pretty accurate. He said this, he goes, something happens to believers, to a person, after they've been a Christian for a while, and then he said this. This is the part that's pretty accurate. He said this, after a while, they care more about the church being the way they want it to be than they care about themselves being the way Jesus wants them to be. They care more about the church being the way they want it instead of being how jesus wants them to be and then he said and that always shows up in the church business meeting it always shows up there where people come with their agenda as to how this so you know you know we're writing this down thinking oh man wonder if that's true it's true it's true (laughs) through the years i found it to be true but not only have I found it to be true, God—and be very serious—God has graciously given me some visions for leadership in this church. Embracing that, that if you were to come to one of our you know, past years and recent years, you'd kind of go, "Not bad," you know, pretty, pretty docile. But I've become closest to the most of the pastors in the area, and you know, I'm kind of outlived them as far as their tenure. So many of them have moved away or changed. But the closest relationships I've built with local pastors and I started laughing this, this past week thinking about it, has all been around helping each other get ready for the annual meeting. Because I get one call from one guy every year, he needs to go, okay, i got four days, you got to help me. And because that would be the context of it. So keep that aside for a moment, and we're going to come back to that because in a few minutes, we're going to look at the first church meeting, business meeting, uh, scheduled for the first, first century church in Acts. And it's kind of good for us to look at it. So the question is, how is it the church has survived? First of all, how is it the church survived us for that long, right? I mean, if this is true, we all want church the way it was for us. How has the church survived us? How, is the, how did the church survive the first century? How did the church survive the Roman Empire? How did the church survive 70 A.D.? If you know anything about church history, 70 A.D., the Jewish faith as we knew it, everyone believed, had come to an end, along with Christianity. Because what happened in 70 A.D.? Don't forget, the, the focal point of all spiritual life in the world was still around Jerusalem. In 70 A.D., Jerusalem was totally destroyed. The temple totally demolished. All of the Jews were either killed, uh, severely persecuted, put into slavery. Christians were being either killed, put into slavery, or on the run. So how does the church survive 70 A.D. when all of that took place? Um, how could it possibly not just survive, but thrive? Now, to catch us all up from... Uh, our story in the past few weeks together it goes like this so about eight weeks this is just kind of a quick snapshot where we've come eight weeks after the resurrection of jesus christ a small group of believers about hundred to one hundred twenty five were on the, on the mountainside with jesus when he said you stay here and you wait you're going to get a gift from our Heavenly Father. and We know now that gift is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to come. You wait here in Jerusalem. And after the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you're going to start telling the story. You're going to start preaching. And you're going to preach that story in Jerusalem. You're going to preach it in Judea. You're going to preach it in Samaria. And you're going to take that same story and you're going to tell that story everywhere in the four corners of the earth. The first day of the church, 3,000 people came to Jesus. Good day. In the next few days after that, thousands more came to Christ. A good couple of days. Now, remember the word church is ecclesia. Remember that? Ecclesia, which means what? The gathering. It's the gathering of the people. Not a building, it's the group of people. So the ecclesia began in Jerusalem. There were other ecclesias, other little groups, but started there. Now, remember when it all began, they weren't called Christians, they were called members of the way. That was the title, nickname given to this group called The Way. So they belonged to The Way. The Jewish leaders were bothered that The Way was growing. They were bothered that it was having huge impact. And so they, decided, they kind of ratcheted up persecution and actually killed one of the first early volunteer lay ministers in the church. His name was Stephen. They stoned him. And what happened next had profound impact. Rome did nothing about the fact that these religious leaders had Stephen killed. They did nothing, which they could have. And that was the green light. The green light to persecution that just destroyed people's homes, lives. They thought was destroying the church, was killing people, persecuting people. The green light. The guy that was leading this massive persecution, his name was Saul. Saul. Saul comes on the scene, and Saul takes on as his life ambition to go and to kill Christians, to hunt them down, to persecute them, to beat them, to put them in prison, to have them killed. That's where we were last time. But God had a plan for Saul. Now, we know him today as who? The Apostle Paul. But God had a plan for Saul, and Saul had a radical change of heart. This hit me in the first service, and I'll give it to you now as a word from God. I don't know who you are this morning and what you're facing. I don't know what mountain you are looking at that you think is unbearable to carry or to get over to get through. When you read the story of the apostle Paul, Saul, the persecutor and murderer of Christians, who becomes the greatest missionary in the history of the church and a changed heart, I just say to you, whatever it is you're against, there's hope. Whatever you think is hopeless, you're wrong. Whatever you think is unchangeable, you're wrong. Whatever you think, there's no use spending more time on it. Don't quit or give up. The Apostle Paul would say to you, no, because when God's involved, it's not over until he says it's over. The Apostle Paul comes to Jesus. We now know him as Paul. For a number of years, Paul goes quiet. We have some of the storyline, but then we don't hear much about him. And in that 20 years, basically, what the Apostle Paul's doing is he's learning. He's interviewing, he's talking to people, talking to disciples and all those kind of things. And then he begins his missionary journeys. He begins to go preach and teach. Look at this picture, I'll put it on the screen for you real quick. I want you to look at all the red dots. <clears throat> all of the red dots, wherever you see a red dot, that's where the Apostle Paul went and preached. Now, I also want you to get capture, if you look at all those red dots, there's a couple things. One, this map doesn't include a little arrow or a dot that would say Spain. The map wasn't big enough to capture Spain, but the Apostle Paul traveled to what we now know as Spain, and we believe that he also traveled to what we now know today as England. But look at all those red dots. Every one of those red dots, don't just mark where he went. They mark the fact that there would be in those little red dots, what would be there? Little ecclesias, little gatherings of churches. Jerusalem had this bigger church. All these other places were churches where Paul was preaching and teaching and began little ecclesias. Now, he travels almost nonstop, uh, starting these little churches and telling the story. Now, we come to the point of today's story where we kind of pick up there. Now you got the background. So Paul is out. So here's today. Here's, so, so tune in now. We're back to up today. Now, Paul is out there all over the world with a simple message. He's preaching a very simple message, and we've talked about this. The message is what? He said, listen, Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. He was dead for three days. He rose from the dead, and hundreds of people saw him. They're eyewitnesses. You can believe the testimony to be true. That was the message. He's out there preaching this simple message. Now, it's about 20 years right now in the story we're looking at today. It's about 20 years after Jesus came back from the dead. So it's 20 years after the first Easter Sunday, 20, 20 years after the crucifixion on the cross, 20 years later. And back in Jerusalem, though, 20 years later, while he's out preaching, back in Jerusalem, there's a controversy brewing. There's a controversy taking place. It's a controversy worth us looking at this morning. And the reason it's worth us looking at is that this controversy is the reason why many people leave churches today. The controversy that was going on back then is one of the key reasons why so many people give up and leave churches. It's why some of you have left another church to come here. It's why some of you might leave this church to go somewhere else sometime it's why some of you have given up your trust of the church and become skeptical of churches it's why some of you who have come from a church background are here in this church even but for some reason you just refuse to engage or jump in and part of the reason can be this very controversy so what was the controversy the controversy was all about how to do church that was the controversy that was happening 20 years after the church began, they got an issue in how to do church. Now, specifically, their issue in how to do church was who was allowed in the church. But it's the same issue, how to do church and who's allowed. But their specific thing was who should be a part of the church. How good do you have to be? How many rules do you have to keep? Uh, how holy do you have to be to actually be a part of the church? Now, here's the background. In Jerusalem, The church in Jerusalem where it all began was a very large church, a very large ecclesia, not building but group of people. And in that church, in the churches around the the, the ecclesias in the Judea area, in that place almost everyone there was a converted Jew, Jewish convert. Makes sense. I mean, it was the heart, it was the center of Judaism. So all the people that are in the church are basically Jewish. Accordingly, that means this. If you're Jewish at that time, that means for your entire life, you had been taught the Ten Commandments... And you had been taught the 600 plus rules you have to follow that would be, they considered it God's law, it was actually man's law. But that's what you heard, for all of your life, 10 commandments, all of these laws you have to keep. So now what happens is you have all that background and then they were coming to Christ. Now don't forget Jesus was Jewish and he was the Jewish Messiah. So they began to believe, and you can see how this can happen. They began to be thinking that Christianity or this group called The Way, is really just the logical extension of Judaism. And it doesn't take hard to get there, right? Because you have all this God background, all the Ten Commandments. Jesus didn't undo any of that. And he comes and fulfills it all. So you begin to think they're thinking it's the extension of Judaism. So it made perfect sense to them that to be a follower of Jesus, you also had to be a follower of Moses. So if you're going to say yes to Jesus, you're going to say yes to Moses. If you're going to say yes to Moses, you're going to want to keep all of the laws that Moses put in place and all the things that they practiced. Made sense to them. Jesus himself said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So to fulfill it would mean, well, we still keep it? And we still follow it because it's got to be good, can't be bad. But on top of that, we add Jesus to the mix. It'd be kind of like this, icing on the cake. We got the cake, and now Jesus has given us the icing, and we get to eat our cake and keep it too. I mean, it's all—it's—it's it's, it's, it's a perfect world. Jesus fulfills it. it. made sense that to become a Christian, you also had to be Jewish. But outside of Jerusalem, don't forget, you have all those red dots, and in all those red dots, you have people who are coming to Jesus, and they're not Jewish people, which means really important. They don't have Ten Commandment background. They get zip, zero, zilch. They have no Ten Commandment background. They have no six hundred plus laws. They have no Sabbath law. They don't have to keep the Sabbath holy. They have none of those things. Just side note again for you: we live in a culture where we keep thinking that the United States was a Christian country. We're moving away from all that and whatever. And we think, oh, there's no hope for the church. You're wrong. The church was growing leaps and bounds to people who had absolutely no Bible background. They had no Ten Commandments. They had nothing as far as that moral compass that we think the world has today. Well, they don't have it today, and they didn't have it then. So, but what's happening is, though, they're coming to Jesus. They're saying yes to Jesus. But now the church is saying, oh, wait a minute, there's more. That's what's happening in the story. They're coming to Jesus, and we get a group of, of Christians that are up in Jerusalem who are saying, time out. There's more to the story than just saying yes. Let's be honest here. If you've been a Christian for 10 years or so, or like me, grew up in the church, you should understand this controversy. You should understand it well. Because let's come on here and be honest. If you've been following Jesus, if you've been in the church following Jesus for a length of time, you know there comes a time where you begin to think, I like the church the way I like it. I like it to be the way I like it to be. I like it to feel like I like it to feel. I like to have certain rules in place and not other rules. And so what happens over time, we begin to think, well, I know how I like church and how I think it should be. Now, please hear this. On top of that, there is a moral compass, right? I mean, Christianity does have, the Bible does have a moral standard. There are do's and don'ts. There are Ten Commandments. There is a moral imperative, got it. Yes, there is the grace of the gospel, but there's also the truth of the gospel. There's the grace that we love, but there's also truth that says you can do that, you can't do that. There's, there's a yes and no to that. So there's this tension. And what happens is there's this tension, and we, apply, we try to apply both, both grace and both truth. And so what happens is we, we, we see this work in the church to balance grace and truth. The, the, John we were studying the book of John and John I think would come out if he were here today and he'd say listen I walk with Jesus and when I watched him I saw I saw in him the incredible blend of grace and truth in fact I saw in Jesus the perfect embodiment of those two not the balance of the embodiment of you see balancing grace and truth that's what we do that's what Christians do that's what churches do see it goes like this in our heads well it can't be that you have to be perfect and sinless we know that doesn't work But it also can't be anything goes and there's no standard. We know that doesn't work. So we say, we got to find a balance. We got to find the balance between sinless, perfect, and anything goes. So in the church world, in a Christian's world, we're going, oh, we got to balance those two out. But Jesus wasn't trying to be balanced. You see, the love of Christ was grace and truth working in a powerful way. And get this. And when the church gets it right, when the church comes together in the name of Jesus to proclaim the grace of the gospel and the truth of the gospel, they walk in perfect harmony together, not trying simply to strike a balance, if you will. But just like we struggle today, the first church was struggling as well. The first century church was trying to figure out how do we balance these two. So let's look at the first church business meeting ever recorded, the first business meeting ever happened, and see what we can learn. The text is Acts chapter 15. I can't read it all for you, so I would encourage you at some point to read it, but let me give you some quick background. Um, a warning here, if you will, that the reading of the story here that I'm going to get into, it's, it's PG-13. There's no way around the fact that the subject matter we're going to talk about here is PG-13 because we're going to talk today about circumcision. So I'm giving you that warning because this, if I get done with a message and you've got a child in the service... And the child comes up to me and says, Pastor, what is circumcision? I'm going to say, talk to your mother or your father. Okay? So I'm just telling you right now. That's what I'm going to do. And if you're not anywhere around and you think, I'm going to get you, I'm going to send my kid to ask you and I'm going to hide in the back. Just so you know, anyone who's close to me, you will become the child's parent. So they say, Pastor, what's circumcision? I'm going to grab the first guy and say, this guy right here will tell you. This woman right here, she'll explain it to you. So now we got the warning out. Here we go. Here's the text, Acts chapter 15, the first verse. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all of the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them and that what God was doing. So there you have the background. So Judea would be Jerusalem. That's the area right around Jerusalem. So there's this spiritual focal point. Antioch is where this takes place, where some leaders come from the church in Jerusalem. They come down, they go up to Antioch. It's actually north. And Antioch would be about 300 miles away. So, yeah, you know, a little bit, little bit of south of Boston, you've got the distance there is the distance between the two. These Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, they came up to Antioch and they're preaching, and they're telling the followers of Jesus there, listen, unless you're circumcised, you can't be a follower of Jesus. Now, I, I laugh, one translation that I read uses the word fully. You can't be a full follower of Jesus, which I laugh how do you be a part-time follower of Jesus? I mean, how do, you, how do you not be full? So thankfully, this has it right. And they basically point-blank say this. Unless you're circumcised, you can't be a follower of Jesus. Now, you have all these Gentile believers. The guys are going, oh, oh, oh wait a minute. So unless, you're saying, unless we have surgery on a very sensitive part of our bodies, we can't be a Christian. yes. I'm thinking that's a pretty important thing for the Apostle Paul to leave out of his message. You know, the simple message, you know, Jesus died for your sins, he was buried, came back from the dead with eyewitnesses, and you have to be circumcised. I would think I'd add that in there because that seems like a pretty critical thing. And that's exactly what they're saying. You can't be a follower of Jesus unless you have been circumcised. So what you're saying is, I can't be a Christian until I'm Jewish. And you have to understand that both the Jews and the Gentiles knew exactly how this worked. little boy born eight days old, eight days, eight days would be circumcised. So if that little boy who was Jewish was born and was circumcised, and they grow up to be a young man, and they come to Jesus, they're, they're covered. It's okay, because they've been circumcised. They got it. But for a Gentile little boy or a Gentile guy who hasn't been circumcised, they grew up, even though the Jewish boy didn't decide to do this, it was just done for him, but the Gentile guy comes to Jesus, and he can't follow Jesus unless he has surgery. And for the women, no problem, they're home free. (laughs) Bottom line, you're good to go, ladies. But for the men to follow Jesus, make an appointment, because the new word is surgery to be saved. That's That's the new witnessing title. What that means is this. If you go to the early church, their church membership classes, they're all women. (laughs) The men are in the car saying, you go, you go. I love Jesus and all, but I'm going to weigh this out a little bit and see how it works out. But report back to me how things are going in the church. Now, remember that they're serious about this. I mean, absolutely serious about this. And what happens in the church world, we get very serious about these things and very impassioned about these things, right? See, I've been around long enough to remember that when we introduced drums into Sunday morning worship, when we introduced drums, people left the church. People left the church. And people stood up. I remember very vividly, people stood up and one person was reading an article written by a missionary, which, by the way, countless other people were also quoting, where the missionary said, how dare drums be introduced into the church because they serve in a place where drums were used to summon the demons. Drums were used to summon Satan. So how would, why would the church of Jesus Christ have drums in the worship service? And people left the church over it. I remember the day that I first wore a black shirt on a Sunday morning to preach. People left the church. You say, what? Because the thought process, I heard this from at least two distinct different groups of people, black is the color of Satan. It's not even a color. It's darkness. And here's the statement. Here's the quote. Why would you clothe yourself in the darkness of Satan? And I was thinking, because it makes me look thinner. I mean, I got to be honest, I look better in black. I mean, it wasn't a spiritual issue for me. I just look good. But they left the church. Now, please know, they were serious about this stuff. I remember when I started preaching from the New International Version instead of the King James Version people left the church in fact not only did they leave the church there was a whole movement in the world and specifically the united states a whole group that had the, these petitions and whatever and that is that the, the king james version is the only authorized word of god by god himself one person told me it was the it's the translation that the apostle paul used <laughs> If you don't know why they're laughing, you know, there was no Bible when Pastor Paul was there. I mean, (laughs) and please know, though, dead, dead serious. Now, here's my point here in all this. When these things happen in our lives, when these things come up, not only are they bothersome to us, but we make them spiritual issues, right? Religion, I mean, righteous indignation. We quote verses out of context, and we do the things to make the case. So, this is, so they're serious about this. You can't be a believer unless you're Jewish and follow all of the Jewish rules and laws. So this brings Paul and Barnabas in a sharp debate and sharp dispute. And so Paul and Barnabas are appointed by the church body to say, listen, you take some others with you, but you go back to Jerusalem. You go meet with Matthew and John and Peter, meet with the, 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 the boys there, and you guys figure this out because it's a big, big deal. So they go. Um, I love this verse, verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. I like the first part, they were welcome. They walked in and people were like, we are so glad to have you here. And then on top of that, I love that piece, but on top of that, it says that they gave a report. They started the meeting by saying, we got a report to give you. And so I can picture the apostle Paul starting me saying, So let me tell you all that God is doing. And just by the way, what God is doing, not in Jerusalem, where you're at, not in Judea, where you guys all stayed, but let me tell you what God is doing in Samaria, where nobody wants to go, and in the uttermost parts of the world, where no one else is going. Let me tell you what's happening. And he says this Gentiles are coming to Jesus. I'm getting up and I'm preaching. And these Gentiles that know nothing about God, they're hearing the story, and they're going, oh, my, I want to believe. And they're following Jesus. And on top of that, Jesus is doing incredible things in their lives. And about every city you can now go to by boat or by foot, about every city you go to, guess what you'll find there? Little ecclesias, Not as big as the one here in Jerusalem, but wherever you go, you'll find these little churches. They're there, and they're going strong. But when I go to those places and I'm preaching, I'm not telling them they've got to be circumcised to follow Jesus. I haven't been telling them in our teaching time that they have to follow the Ten Commandments and all the laws of God. I haven't walked through all of that, that the law they have to keep. I haven't been telling them that. So, guys, listen. This new message you're sending now, it's a, it's a confusing message We're sending a mixed message, and we got to get this straight because it's a big deal. Now, this is real interesting, verse verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up, and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So the Pharisees, the party of the Pharisees, but look what it says. It says some of the believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees. I mean, now wait a minute. Believers, Pharisees? How does that go together? I mean, these are the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees, these are the guys that had Jesus put to death. The Pharisees, they're the ones that are persecuting the Christians. I mean, the, the, the Pharisees, they are, the Pharisees are to Christians what the Yankees are to the Red Sox. I mean, these are the moral enemies. I mean, these are the bad guys. These are the guys that are never good guys. But something happened in the 20 years that this has been happening, and they've been coming to Jesus. And so now some of these Pharisees who come to Jesus, who are believers, they stand up. And they speak. Don't forget, it's about 20 years now and they've been following Jesus. They've joined the way. Now, don't be too hard on them here because when I explain this, you're gonna get it real easily. So they become followers of Jesus. But don't forget, these are people who live their whole life with the Ten Commandments. They lived their whole life with circumcision. They lived their whole life with following all of the laws of God. And don't forget, it was all rooted in the law of Moses, which was God's law. And so here's the thought process. They said, listen, we've been in this our whole life, and we're just thinking that this would be really helpful to the ecclesia. Because don't forget, you're always trying to figure out how to make things work and how do we live pure lives. Well, listen, we can help with that. Because it' been a part of our background our whole lives. and so it just makes sense. On top of that, of course, their Jewish practices would show up in the new believers, meaning this: I mean, right, after, right after the resurrection, right after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where did Peter and John go? They go to the temple. Why the temple? Because it was still the center of worship read the accounting of the, of those first followers of Jesus every day they were together they ate their meals together but every day you could find them where the bible says in the temple courts why because it was still part of who they were it was the worship of god now please get what's happening here see they're not trying to invent the wheel they already have the wheel they're just trying to make it better and so for the religious leaders the pharisees they're going listen we got good news for you we don't got to reinvent this thing we already got a wheel and it's all this Jewish history here, and it's all God stuff. So it would really be helpful in the church. But in contrast, here's these Gentiles. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They couldn't tell you what the Ten Commandments were. They didn't have a list of 600 spiritual laws they had to keep. They didn't eat differently. They didn't, eat, they didn't dress differently. They didn't have Sabbath days. They had to follow. They had none of that. And now what they're hearing is, but now you have to add something in. Before you had Jesus... And now we got to add more, and it's perplexing. Side note for you here. Isn't it interesting that the people in the story that are adding things in, that are, that are, that are getting more complex with their policies and, D, and rules, isn't it interesting that it's the oldest church and the oldest Christians? It's the church that has been in place the longest, 20 years, and people who have been followers of Jesus, and they're the ones that are having to struggle with what we add into this, these new guidelines. Now, if you've been a follower of Jesus again for, you know, any length of time, that's what we all do. We kind of slip into, we can just make this cleaner if we put some things in place. Back to our story in verse 7. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart show that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples, these new disciples, a yoke that neither you, that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. They're saved just as they are. So I like the first part. He says, you know, listen, um, God knows the heart. He stands up and he says, Peter speaks. He goes, first of all, he's the president of the association. Um, and if you've been a Catholic background, you you would have been taught he was the first Pope. But Peter wouldn't have believed that, and we don't find any proof of that, but he clearly has a voice and he gets up to speak. And he starts by saying this. I was, I was actually appointed by you to, to, to preach to the Gentiles. If you know some of the Peter story, he actually preached to the Gentiles and he saw all sorts of Romans come to Jesus. So that's what he tells them. So he, it's, it's not, not just them, I preached this message and I saw all sorts of people, Roman people, Gentiles, who put their faith in Jesus. And then he says this very important statement, the one I have to remember all over and over again, in verse eight, God knows the heart. There it is, God knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Verse eight, there it is. That he says, God knows the heart. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows the heart? And most of us would say yes. But here's the problem. The problem is, I don't know your heart. I just know your behavior. See, here's why it gets complex in the church. I don't know your heart. I just know your behavior. I don't know your heart. I just know how you dress. I I don't know your heart. I just see your tattoos. I don't know your heart. I just see your piercings. I don't know your heart, I just see your pink hair. Or no hair, it could go either way there. I don't know you, I just know what I see. I don't know your heart, I just know the music you listen to. I don't know your heart, I just know that you don't keep your yard very nice, or your house very tidy. I don't know you, but I know that you don't parent the way I would parent. And you don't think like I would think. I don't know you, but I know that you don't agree with where I'm at politically. I don't know you. I just know what I see in you. See, the God who knows the heart, he says, accepted them. And they didn't even know the Ten Commandments. It's important. He's saying, listen, the God who knows their heart accepted them and actually gave to them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they didn't know the Ten Commandments. They know nothing about the law of Moses. And yet his Holy Spirit resides in them. And then verse 9, he made no distinction Between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. God makes no distinction between those who have this huge history in the Bible, in the in the church, and those who have absolutely no history. God, who knows their heart, purifies their heart. Now at this point, the Pharisees are kind of taking it on the chin, but they're not done yet. And the reason they're not done is because they have a good argument. See, don't forget the argument is this. Yep, there is the grace of God, but there's still the truth of God. They're still right and wrong. So you can imagine in this setting, they're listening to all this, and they're getting it, but they have a little fight left in them, and I'm picturing it kind of going down this road. Okay, 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 we got it. Okay, Peter, we understand. Yeah, they have purified hearts. But they might have purified hearts, but they still have some pretty unpurified, nasty Gentile habits. I mean, granted, we don't see the heart. All we see is the behavior. And they got some behaviors that really aren't very appealing. You see, God may have purified their hearts, but they, they don't eat right. They eat things that are detestable. They eat things that are unclean, that they're not supposed to be eating. I mean, God may have changed, purified their heart, but they're not dressing right. They're offensive. But Peter keeps going. Then he says this, so why put on them a burden? that neither we or our ancestors could even bear. Translate goes like this. I'm going to ask you a question. Don't raise your hand, though it's okay because truth of it is, all of you should raise your hand. So in this case, I'm telling you not to. Not because I don't want to embarrass you by raising your hand. I don't want to embarrass you if you don't raise your hand. So don't raise your hand. I'll raise it for you. How many of you have broken one of God's laws? Every hand would go up. And if you're honest you'd put both hands up and borrow your friend's hand and start waving your hands <laughs> because you say, yeah, just about every one of them, I have broken them. That's what we would do, right? And so Peter gets it. He goes, listen, we can't get it right. We have broken God's law. So he says, so why do we want to put this burden on these people? Why do we want to put, we couldn't keep it right. We couldn't get it right. Why do we want to give them a burden that we couldn't bear and they, po- they can't possibly bear it? So he says, nope, we're not going to do that. He said, it's going to be grace. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and that alone that saves us. It's not the behavior. Now, from these past couple of verses we just read here, there's a couple of statements I need you to hear. God can purify a heart long before he purifies a lifestyle god can purify a heart long before he purifies some nasty habits god can purify a heart before he fixes a marriage God can purify your heart long before you finally face up to the fact that you have some insecurities that keep you doing behaviors that get you in trouble. God can purify your heart before you figure out the rest of it that keep taking you down a bad path. God can purify your heart, and your heart can still be pure, even though you make bad decisions along the way, and they in turn have to be purified at some point in time anyway. The heart's still pure. That's what he's saying. God's purified their heart. And each of those statements are equally true of all of those people that we look at and we tend to judge. See, when you look at someone, when you don't know their heart and all you see is your behavior, we have a choice. We go grace or we go judgment. And guess which way we usually choose? Judgment. All those statements are true. God can purify the heart before the other things are purified. Unfortunately, we don't know the heart. But we only know the things that we don't necessarily like. And with that, we usually jump to judgment. Time's going. Let's get wrapped up here. So then in the story, James gets up. Don't forget, James is the brother of Jesus. Jesus. I don't have time to read everything that James says, but we'll jump down to his conclusion, which I love in verse 19. It is my judgment, he says, verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. James hears everything. He's got more to say. You can read it on your own. But James gets up and he basically says this. Listen, everybody. And I'm saying this to you. Listen, everybody. I get the tension between grace and truth. I get it. I get the tension that there's rights and wrongs and there's moral standards and there needs to be. I get the tension that we've got this, this, this loving act of God to take our sins away and yet we still live in sin. I get the tension and I know that sometimes it gets really messy in this tension. I know it, I know it. But if the movement is gonna continue to keep moving as the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, the model that he has set, Is the model we want to try to grab a hold of, and that is grace and truth walking together. And so he says this. So here's my judgment. He says, This is not about who's here, but it's about who's not yet here. That's what's critical here. So he says, So if we can help it, let's not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. And then he says, This, here's what we should do we should write a letter and send it to all the Gentiles, and Antioch, and all the other places, we should write a letter, and send it to them, and tell them this, verse 20. Instead, we should write to them, instead of making it more difficult, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, immorality, not mortality, sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues of every Sabbath. Now, real quickly, imagine if you would, you're the guy in charge taking minutes for the meeting. And you just heard the proposal. Now, one part, you like a proposal because you like something to get moving. Instead of just talking for hours, somebody says, hey, I got, I got a motion. Let's write a letter. I like this. Let's send them a letter. Let's define how they should act. Got it. Let's write this down. So two things. One, stay away from meat that's been polluted by idols. And number two, stay away from sexual morality. And if you're the guy taking notes, you're going, what? Two? I mean, first of all, we got 10 commandments alone. We got circumcision And I got 613 other laws, and you're saying, two? Stay away from meat that's polluted by idols and stay stay away from sexual immorality, two? To which Peter goes, yeah, two. And let me explain why those two. He goes, yeah, two. One, stay away from the meat that's been polluted by the idols because you're hanging out with a bunch of Jewish folks. That for as long as they've been alive, the law of Moses has been read and the law of Moses said, don't eat unclean things for yourself, for your your health, for all the spiritual. Don't do those things. So don't eat them because that would show your sensitivity to them. And that's a good thing. So don't do that. And the second thing is, real point blank, it's a good thing. Stay sexually pure. Two things. And so they send the letter. But they send the letter with Messengers. They send a letter with messengers. They have a couple guys go back with them to answer this question, surgery or no surgery. Now imagine if you would, if you're in the church in Antioch or the other churches and the brothers show up with a letter and they're not going to read it until they're all together because don't forget, they don't circulate the letter. It's read publicly. So everyone's gathered together and the word gets out there. They're back from Jerusalem. They have an answer to the circumcision question. So you're in there. Every man in the church is sweating bullets going, okay, here we go. And here's what's read to them. We have heard that some, this is verse 24, we have heard that some went from out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and to send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. And here's the heart of what they're writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Just stop right there. Friends, you are always in the best place you can be when you agree with the Holy Spirit. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols from blood from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality and you will do well to avoid these things farewell got to be the greatest letter ever written it's got to be the perfect mix of grace and truth he goes listen stay away from meat idols a deference to your Jewish friends and stay Sexually pure. And I love their response. I won't have time to read it for you, but down in verse 31, if you do read it, the response is this, and the people were glad for this encouraging message. You know why? Because in that moment, they gathered in the name of Jesus, and whenever you do things in the name of Jesus with his guiding hand, you get it right. And so they heard the message, and they got it. They were glad for the encouraging message. And with that, friends, the church dodged its first major church split. But here's a side note, painful side note. But we do believe from history that there were a group that didn't like that decision. And they went off and were still preaching this little message over here that says you have to be all Jewish first. But it wasn't a split. There are some that disagreed and left, But the church stayed strong. Now let's wrap up. There's three things I need you to hear in bullet statements as we end. Three things that you need to work hard to not let happen. The first one is this, avoid drifting from being outsider-focused to being insider-focused. Because that's what we do. We drift from being outside the church-focused to being insider-focused. Every Christian, every local church over time drifts to becoming all about us. Which makes sense, right? Because who's here? Us. Who's paying the bills? Us. Who's serving? Us. And so it's easy to drift into the well, if I'm doing that, then it ought to be about me. But I want you to remember something. I give and I serve and I show up so that other people who aren't here yet will show up too. That's why we give every time we do video announcements we say thank you for giving into the ministry of essex Lions church we give and we serve and we show up so that others will come behind us and show up too. second thing avoid drifting away from grace and drifting toward the law avoid drifting away from grace and drifting towards the law and and more things to do or policies to have friends rules and policies are always cleaner but they're always more damaging. They are cleaner, no question. The natural drift for Christians and for local churches is to move towards more policies. I would say less policies, more conversations. You see, when you see something that kinda go, oh, I'm not sure that's right. Instead of saying, let's write a policy about it, or let's go talk to somebody above them about it, why not just go have a conversation? Because that's what God calls us to do. I remember, remember Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, was a tax collector, pagan tax collector, sinner of sinners. And Jesus didn't say, well, we have a lifestyle policy against immoral tax collectors. What he said to Matthew was what? Follow me and let's have a conversation. Let me give you a third thing. Avoid drifting towards preserving as opposed to advancing. Don't drift to preserving. This is so subtle, but it goes like this. So if you start a new business, you have nothing to preserve, right? You start a new business from scratch, you have nothing to preserve. So, man, you're all in. Risk it, take a chance, go get it done, whatever. But then over time, what happens? If it works, now I have a staff, now I have a building, now I have a payroll, now I have insurance, I have all this. Thing. And the same thing happens in churches. You got all the stuff, and now you got to preserve. When things aren't going right, when the culture's changing, ooh, we got we to preserve. no. Don't drift towards preservation. Keep drifting towards advancement. Keep advancing the church. Because our inclination, especially when things change, and listen, friends, carefully, we are in what what so many people feel would be the most changing culture ever, which is not true, but that's what it feels like. And so in a changing culture, what do churches and Christians want to do? <gasps> we got to preserve. Preserve what it was. Preserve what we have. Preserve what it is. COVID put a spotlight on the church and the churches that are trying to just preserve what they've always known probably aren't going to be around in the future and I would challenge you, don't drift towards preserving keep moving towards advancing because that's the model of Jesus final words, the God who sees the heart shows his grace and truth through his Holy Spirit And we look just like that when the church gets it right when we operate in the name of christ in such a way stand please let's pray father i'm thankful that the first church had to have a business meeting to sort out a problem it gives me hope it gives me hope because when i look at us and and i look at me at times i kind of go oh lord you know i'm just a wreck i'm a mess or look at the problems we're facing now then i go back and i say wait a minute they faced the same thing and look how well they did they did well because they relied on you help us to rely on you and find that perfect mix not the balance but help us find this powerful mix the embodiment of grace and truth as we continue to worship you dismiss us in your grace